Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation's webinar, a discussion with EPA Administrator Wheeler. My name is Darren Baxt, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And I wanna thank all of you for participating in today's program. Before we get started, let me take care of some housekeeping notes. First, all attendees will be in listen-only mode, but we want this to be an interactive program hearing directly from you. So if you look at the right-hand side of your screen, you'll see a question box. Please submit your questions using that question box. This webinar is being recorded and will be available on heritage.org in 48 hours. So now let's get to the program. We're thrilled to have Heritage's Executive Vice President, Dr. Kim Holmes with us today to introduce our distinguished guest. As Executive Vice President, Dr. Holmes oversees all operations at Heritage and advises Heritage President Kay James on strategic and managerial matters. Previously, Dr. Holmes oversaw Heritage's Defense and Foreign Policy Institute for more than two decades and served as Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs from 2002 to 2005. As a historian of U.S. political movements and ideology, Dr. Holmes writes about America's place in the world and the changing political landscape, and he's the, and he's the author of numerous books, including his latest book, the Closing of the Liberal Mind. He's a stalwart advocate and defender of freedom, and it's my honor to welcome him today. Dr. Holmes, will you please join me? <clears throat> Dr. Holmes, I'll turn the program over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Darren, and good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us uh, today for this program. We are very pleased indeed to welcome Andrew Wheeler, uh, the Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency to the Heritage Foundation, even though it's only virtually, uh, for what is sure to be a very interesting program. Administrator Wheeler and the EPA have been especially active this year in proposing and finalizing critical regulatory reforms. These would rein in past agency overreach and vastly improve the transparency of the agency. The reforms respect the rule of law and they respect property rights, and they also promote cooperative federalism. They recognize also, as Congress did when it passed major environmental statutes like the Clean Water Act, that states are supposed to play a leading role in environmental protection. Now, the Heritage Foundation has worked extensively on EPA-related issues, including those issues that are the agency's biggest successes. Now, these range from the repeal of the Obama administration's Waters of the United States rule that would have regulated almost any water imaginable to promoting the EPA's use of sound science. The EPA has served as a model for agencies across the federal government, both in terms of how to promulgate and to implement regulations, but also how to improve the process in which those regulations are actually developed and enforced. So we look forward today to hearing Administrator Wheeler's remarks about the EPA's regulatory and other successes. 
Just a note, after Administrator Rubino's remarks, uh, there will be further conversation with Darren Bask and also an opportunity for our audience to ask questions. So now let me introduce today's distinguished guest. Andrew Wheeler was confirmed as the 15th Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency on February 28, 2019. Mr. Wheeler has a dedicated his career to advance, advancing sound and environmental policies. He has served in a variety of positions in government, starting with the EPA and President George Herbert Walker Bush's administration, in private industry, and on Senate committees on environment and public works, clean air, climate change, wetlands, and nuclear safety. Mr. Wheeler is the past chairman of the National Energy Resource Organization and a Stennis Fellow. Mr. Wheeler is from Fairfield, Ohio. He completed his law degree at Washington University in St. Louis and his MBA at George Mason University. So I hope all of you will extend a warm welcome to Administrator Wheeler, who will now join us. Thank you, Dr. Holmes, for the introduction. And thank you to You're Heritage welcome. for inviting me to speak today. It's glad to have you. Thank you very much. When President Trump asked me to take over at the agency in July of 2018, he gave me some pretty clear direction. He said I should continue to clean up the air, continue to clean up our water, and continue to deregulate to help create more jobs for the American people. He knows that we can do all three. I know that we can. And I believe over the last three and a half years, we have proven that we can do all three at the same time. I just returned from a six-day trip out west, visiting communities in Wyoming, Montana, and Colorado. And I can tell you that despite the challenges, people are at work, people are getting things done, and EPA is doing the job the president tasked us to do. A lot of people around the country are very happy with the way the Trump administration has handled environmental and energy policies. We've stayed within the language of our statutes and the relevant Supreme Court cases, while implementing policy. It's one of the reasons the agency has a better relationship with landowners, farmers, and ranchers than in the past. We are listening more. And people can see that this administration has a view on policy that is based on sound and transparent science and not based on virtue, single, virtue singling for climate changes and foreign capitals. EPA was founded 50 years ago and was given a mission to protect human health and the environment. And it is not an overstatement to say that our environment today is the cleanest that it has been in our lifetimes. Almost every single environmental indicator that we measure is at its lowest levels since the agency began measuring pollutants. From 2017 through the end of last year, air pollution in the United States under President Trump decreased by 7%. And since 1970, air pollution in this country has fallen by 77%, while the economy grew to almost four times larger. EPA has invested $38 billion under the Trump administration in clean water infrastructure, supporting 7,000 projects and helping create 21,000 jobs. EPA is also busy cleaning up some of the most toxic land sites in the country, often overlooked in the past. In fiscal year 2019 alone, EPA deleted all or part of 27 Superfund sites, 
the most in a single year since 2001. I visited a super site, Superfund site in Pueblo, Colorado earlier this week, where EPA and the local community are working to clean up lead and arsenic-contaminated soil and dust from a lower-income neighborhood where contamination levels have been too high for decades. We increased our funding and cut in half the time needed to clean up the contamination in these neighborhoods. This site was listed in 2014, and when I came to the agency, I discovered that it was not supposed to be cleaned up for 10 to 15 years, and I said that was unacceptable since children are playing in the yards in these homes. So we're getting it cleaned up, and all of the cleanup will be completed by the end of 2023, and in fact, we're on schedule to complete it sooner. This means that parents in these neighborhoods will know that the health of their children, whether they are playing on playgrounds or in areas outside their homes, is being properly protected years earlier than we originally planned. And this means that agencies like EPA can show that we can fulfill our mission to protect human health and the environment everywhere and for everyone across the entire country, regardless of their zip code. We can talk more about the policy successes of the past three years during the questions and answers, but I'd just like to mention a few of them here quickly. We finalized three major rules on greenhouse gases that are legally defensible and balance costs and benefits. The ACE rule regulates greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector. The SAFE rule covers the automobile emissions and just last week finalized the standards for aircraft. The Obama-Biden administration went well beyond the authority of the statutes that govern them in order to make political points and curry international favor. What we have done is relied upon the law and relied upon the Supreme Court cases. EPA should not be writing rules that operate like laws that Congress didn't pass or that the Supreme Court didn't uphold. Our new rules cut emissions in a meaningful way without damaging entire industries like energy or agriculture. The same goes for our Waters of the U.S. rule, which provides greater certainty to states and landowners. Now I would like to um, talk a little bit about what we're doing internally at the agency. I know that Heritage cares about the administrative state, and we have taken um, actions in five key areas under this administration, what I consider to be the five pillars of reforms, internal reforms here at the agency. We're implementing cost benefit across the board, science transparency. We have a new guidance document policy and procedure. We've reorganized our regional offices and we've implemented lean management throughout the agency. Two and a half years ago, we proposed a rule on cost benefit um, that we originally had applied to the entire agency and all of our rulemakings. Through notice and comment, we decided to take a different approach and to approach this on a statute by statute basis, starting with the Clean Air Act. So we have proposed a cost benefit rule for the Clean Air Act that will define how the agency calculates costs and benefits for each of our rulemakings under that statute. We intend to finalize the Clean Air Cost Benefit Rule before the end of this year. After we're finished with cost benefit, on the Clean Air Act, we will move to our other statutes on a statute-by-statute -statute basis. Starting the beginning of next year, we will move to RCRA and the Safe Drinking Water Act. 
We will then complete all of our major cost benefit regulations on a statute by statute basis by the end of 2022. The second major change we've made is on science transparency. We have proposed, in fact, to went out for a second round of comments on a rule that will require the agency to make available to the public the science that we use that forms the basis for our regulations. I first joined the agency as a career employee outside out of law school back in 1991, working on the community right to know. And I firmly believe that the American public has a right to know what we base our regulations on. And I think our regulations will be better accepted, but not only by the American public, but by the regulated industries, environmental organizations, states, local governments, if they all know the basis behind the regulations and why we're making the decisions that we're making. We will finalize our science transparency regulation before the end of this year, and then we will take the same approach that we're doing under the cost-benefit process, which is to create a science transparency regulation for each of our statutes to define how it will be implemented on a statute-by-statute -statute basis. We will start with the Clean Air Act. So as soon as the, our Clean Air Office finishes their cost-benefit regulation, they will move on to science transparency. And we will go through each of our major statutes for science transparency, and we will complete that process by the end of 2023. President Trump last year issued an executive order for guidance documents across the entire agency. And EPA has taken the lead on the implementation of that executive order. The executive order requires us to put all of our guidance documents on a searchable database so that anyone can go to the EPA website or any government website and search for the guidance documents that apply to a specific industry, sector, or program. Um, we went through all of our guidance documents. Some of our guidance documents date back to when EPA was founded 50 years ago. We have placed on our searchable database 10,000 guidance documents. At the same time, however, we rescinded over 1,000 guidance documents. And going forward, all guidance documents will have to be put onto the searchable database before they can take effect. This is a huge change in administrative procedures and one that is the biggest change, in my opinion, in, in the last generation or two. For the first time ever, um, people will understand what applies to their industry, to their neighborhood, to the facilities around them through our guidance process. The agency has been criticized for years for having secret guidance documents or guidance documents that were not available to the public. And if people wanted access to the guidance documents, you actually had to go to our physical reading rooms and go through file cabinets searching for the guidance documents that applied to them or applied to the facilities in their neighborhoods. Unlike regulations, which are published in the Federal Register, guidance documents were not made public necessarily. But today, for the first time ever, all of our guidance documents are available on a searchable database. Anyone can go to epa.gov and look up the guidance documents and see for themselves what applies across the board. The fourth area of our five pillars is our, is our commitment to transparency at our regional offices. EPA has 10 regional offices across the country, and our organizational structure for our regional office, offices did not mirror the federal headquarters. 
In fact, we had regions that did not even have in their in their titles of their divisions the word air um, air quality or air pollution. So if you wanted to find out which office within each of our regions handled a specific area, you had to search. It wasn't easily understandable across the board. So what we did is we reorganized all 10 of our regional offices to mirror the headquarters so that all 10 offices have a clean air division. They now all have a water division, a um, lands division, and a chemicals division so that people know where they can go to to find out information within their states and regions at the EPA regional level. Um, this also better aligns our regions so that we can work more closely together between the regions and between the regions and headquarters. It's going to allow the states to have a better understanding on where they need to go to to find out information about EPA programs. So this is a huge change in the structure of the agency, which will help benefit everyone who's trying to find out information from the agency about how the agency's policies impact their lives. And finally, the fifth pillar in our five pillars of reforms at the, at the structurally here at the agency is the fact that we have implemented the lean management system across the board. We've established reporting metrics for all programs within the agency, much, what, much like what is used in the private sector. This means that we're tracking quarterly, in some cases monthly, and working to shrink the historic backlog of regulatory permits, for example, that we inherited from the Obama administration. We're also using the system to track the authorizing of new chemicals, cleaning and delisting Superfund sites, bringing areas into non-attainment, and responding to employee input. These are all things that EPA should have been doing already, but it, was, but it wasn't implemented. Here are a few examples of what we're doing under the lane management system. We've addressed the historic backlog of state implementation permits. It's fallen by 90% from almost 700 backlog permits to less than 70 back permits today. The number of Superfund sites delisted in 2016 before the beginning of this administration was three. In 2018, that number jumped to 22. And in 2019, as I said earlier, that number is up to 27 the highest number of Superfund sites delisted in a single year since 2001. We've required all of our senior executives to be responsible for a lean management activity within their programs. So we are addressing um, permit backlogs, SIP backlogs under the Clean Air Act, water permits, um, grants processes across the board. Every measurable input that we have, we are now measuring for the first time. At the beginning of this administration, President Trump said he wanted all federal permits to be done within two years. My predecessor said he wanted all EPA permits to be done within six months. We discovered at the beginning of this administration that the EPA was not tracking how long it took to issue a permit. You cannot improve a process unless you track how long the process takes. By implementing the lean management system across the agency, we're now tracking all of our processes all of our internal controls, and we're able to look at it instead of an annual basis, we're able to look at it in real time so we know where problems are, where there are bottlenecks, and we can address those in real time. So there's a lot for us to be proud of here at EPA. And I've been telling my staff that it's become clear that we've done more in less than four years than the previous administration did in eight. That said, we're not slowing down. This is a chance to change the way EPA works in the future 
and for the better. As I mentioned, we are celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. We are taking a hard look at the accomplishments over the last 50 years, and we have had some tremendous accomplishments. Like I noted, air pollution is down 77% since 1970, 7% during this administration. On the water side, in 1970, over 40% of our water facilities across the country failed to meet basic health standards every single day. Today, over 92% of all of our water systems meet every standard every single day. That doesn't mean that the other 8% aren't meeting those standards. Um, occasionally, they may have a blip on a reporting requirement, but we're working with those facilities to make sure that they come into compliance to ensure that all Americans everywhere have access to safe drinking water. The changes that we have implemented, the five pillars that I just discussed, will improve the way the EPA operates for at least the next generation, if not for the next 50 years. I wanna thank you for your attention today. With so much going on in the world, it's important to spend some time looking at both where we've been and where we're going. We appreciate all of the support Heritage has given this administration through the years. None of the things that I've mentioned today would have been possible without your help um, on these issues. So I appreciate your time and I'm happy to start answering some questions. Thank you. Thank you, Administrator Wheeler for your remarks. So at this time, we'll have a discussion that will include questions from myself and all of you participating today. So again, uh, I encourage you to submit your questions now using the question box on your screen. So to, to kick things off, Administrator Wheeler, um, during your tenure, one of the big themes in EPA rulemakings has been a respect for the state role in environmental protection. Do you agree that states play an important role and could you provide some examples of how the EPA has worked closely with both states and local governments? Absolutely. Um, we, we do work very closely with states and local governments and our regional reorganization really helped that um, working closer with the states. Um, but, you know, probably the best example would be under the Clean Air Act. Um, the, the Obama Biden administration issued um, four times as many federal implementation plans directed at the states than the, I'm sorry, 10 times than the previous four administrations combined. So instead of working with the states on a state implementation plan, if, it, if a state has an area that's in non-attainment, they have to submit a state implementation plan to the EPA for approval. If the EPA and the state don't agree on what the state implementation plan is, EPA has the authority to then issue a federal implementation plan overriding the state's um, plans and, and basically trumping them. Um, the Obama-Biden administration, 10 times as many FIPS, federal implementation plans as the previous four administrations. We have reversed that trend. And since March of 2017, on average, we have turned one FIP back into a SIP. We're working with the states in order to implement the Clean Air Act, and we're working with them in a, in a cooperative manner so that we're not um, treading on top of them. Another great example is on the on the WOTUS rule. We replaced the WOTUS rule with a, with the um, Navigable Waters Protection Rule, which works in conjunction with the states and recognizes the fact that the states regulate their own water. Under the Obama-Biden approach, um, they they took the approach that the states don't do anything to regulate water, which is not the case. Every single state 
as regulations in place regulating water. So what we did was we differentiated between federal navigable waters and the adjacent wetlands that go along with them under the Supreme Court cases and state protected waterways. Under the um, Obama Biden um, 20 what was it 2015 WOTUS rule, 98% of the state of Iowa would have fallen under federal regulations. That's just unacceptable and unnecessary. And it really overburdens the states. So we are working with the states across the board, but the two great examples is our use of working with the states on state implementation plans instead of imposing um, the agency's will on the states. And then our recognition that the states are doing a lot on water protection that the Obama Biden administration just simply did not recognize. Thanks. Um, so an issue big for heritage. Um, the EPA has been trying to promote transparency in the agency's use of science. You know, after all, the public should be able to evaluate how decisions are being made. Could you elaborate a bit more on your transparency efforts in the science transparency rule that you discussed? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, it really goes to the heart of community right to know. People have a right to know what we base our regulations on. And for too often, the, the, the agency was not upfront about which scientific studies we used and the data in the studies were not there available to the public. Um, we are going to, you know, under our science transparency process, and you know, people call it the secret science rule, which is a complete misnomer, is science transparency. I don't know why the left is afraid of transparent regulations, but that's what we're talking about here is making the data transparent to the public so that everyone knows what we are using as the basis for our regulations. Um, it will require um, that the studies to have this, the data available for, for um, independent validation. Um, however, there are, there are certainly some exemptions. Um, for example, if, it, if a study deals with um, individuals' health data, that would be protected under HIPAA, and that information cannot be disclosed, but could still be used by the agency. And at the, at the end of the process, the administrator and future administrators of the agency will be able to exempt any particular study if there is a noteworthy study that needs to be used for regulatory purposes and the underlying data is not necessarily available. But the idea is that we want to promote the, the transparent um, um, access to the data so that other scientists, the public, the regulated community, the environmental organizations can all take a look at the information that we're using to base our regulations. And I believe when that happens and when it's fully implemented, um, and maybe I, I'm an eternal optimist, but I'm hoping that there'll be fewer, um, less litigation, fewer lawsuits, because people will see how we based our decisions and they won't have to go to court to try to um, push one way or the other on a regulation. Thanks, and we have a question from the audience. Um, is it reasonable to hope for an EPA diet, that's in quotes, since there are now 50 state EPAs, meaning that the federal EPA might be refocused on truly national, national issues and lead the states to manage themselves? Well, well, I think we are moving in that direction. You know, if you take a look at the programs, um, what is it? I think it's 97% of all um, permits under the Clean Water Act are now done at the state level. On the air side, um, 48 states have the delegated program. Um, so it's, you know, the states certainly are implementing the programs. They're, impl they're implementing across the board. And EPA is, you know, the role of the agency is to set 
the regulations, the standards that are then implemented by the states. Um, that was what Congress envisioned. You know, a perfect example there on the enforcement side, um, if the, the agency over the last 30 years, the number of inspections that we conduct has, has gradually gone down and the number of enforcement actions on the civil side have gone down because those programs have been delegated to the states. You know, there's um, politicians on Capitol Hill like to cite those numbers and say that we're not doing our job, which is certainly not the case at all. And it's 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 a it's a false narrative um, under the delegated programs, which the Congress actually put into our statutes. The states are supposed to be taking on those roles. But what we have done under the, the Trump administration is we've worked proactively at the beginning of the process working with facilities on the audit side to make sure that people can come into compliance. It's much better to have a, um, facilities come into compliance with environmental regulations instead of going after them on the enforcement side. It's better for the environment and it's better for resources, both of the government as well as, as, well as facilities. But at the end of the day, we want less pollution going into the air and to the water. But the other end of the enforcement spectrum on the criminal side if there are bad actors out there, EPA has a role to play there. And the criminal statistics have gradually declined every year since 2011 with fewer and fewer criminal cases. We actually reversed that the last two years. We had an increase in the number of criminal cases because we will not tolerate companies or facilities um, violating the law and polluting the environment. So we work with them at the beginning of the process to try to make sure everybody is in compliance with the laws. But if they're not, we will go after them with the authorities that we have. And we reversed a downward trend that began in 2011 under the Obama Biden administration. Thanks. And just to remind the audience, please feel free to submit questions. And I see plenty. Um, so another issue really important at Heritage is we've long opposed the abuse of what are called ancillary benefits or indirect benefits to justify EPA air rules. Before the Trump administration, the agency justified some of the costliest rules in U.S. history without showing any quantifiable benefits connected to the actual purpose of the rules. So could you explain what the EPA is doing to address this ancillary benefits abuse? Absolutely. And we are addressing it through our cost benefit regulation. As I mentioned, our first one would be under the Clean Air Act. But I want to take a step back to um, one of the biggest abuses. Of the, of the cost benefits side and the use of co-benefits, which was committed by the Obama Biden administration on the on the MATS rule, the mercury air toxics rule. Um, the the agency under under Obama Biden um, issued a regulation to address mercury pollution from the utility sector, but they justified it with um, reductions from particulate matter PM. Over 98% of the benefits from that rule came from PM reductions, not mercury reductions. So the costs were very high and they used co-benefits to justify the benefits of the rule instead of focusing on mercury, which was the intention of the rulemaking. That regulation went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court remanded it back to the agency and said, you have to redo your cost benefit analysis. And we did. And we issued that earlier this year, our, our new match ruling, where we said that you were not going to use the coal benefits of other pollutants in order to justify the mercury reductions. And I want to assure the American public that we also did a technology review of the utility industry at the same time, which 
which will require the utility industry to keep the mercury re reduction technologies in place. So there will be no increase in mercury emissions because of our because of our reworking of the cost benefit analysis for the mercury rule. However, it sets in place for the future how the agency will address co-benefits. And co-benefits can certainly be considered and can be discussed in a rulemaking, but they should not be the justification for a rulemaking when the co-benefits are not the pollutants in question and, and they were not addressed by that section of the Clean Air Act. So we are requiring um, a, a different look on co-benefits. Again, you can still look at it, you can still quantify it, but they should never be the justification for a rulemaking having nothing to do with the pollutant that the co-benefits are, are addressing. Thanks. So we have a greenhouse gas related question from the audience. Um, do you think that America has a responsibility to rejoin to rejoin the Paris Agreement, or is the U.S. better off leaving the Paris Agreement? We're much better off leaving the Paris Agreement. Since 2005, our CO2 emissions have dropped 15% in this country, while at the same time, most other industrial nations' CO2 emissions have increased. Um, almost all of Europe has increased their CO2 emissions. The Paris Climate Accord was great for Paris, bad for Pittsburgh. Um, it would have made it would have, we would have had to make additional reductions here, while our trading partners, such as China, would able to increase their emissions without checks until at least 2030 before they would even have to start making any reductions. The Paris Climate Accord was a horrible deal for the American consumer, American businesses, American families. We have proven that you can reduce CO2 emissions without being part of the international agreement on Paris, on the Paris Climate Accord. Um, we did, we are reducing pollutants. As I said earlier, we have taken three regulatory actions to reduce CO2 emissions in this country. And we've done it in a cost-effective measured approach that will continue to reduce our CO2 emissions. And the rest of the world is looking at what we're doing. They won't admit it, but they're looking at what we are doing because we are reducing our CO2 emissions without harming our economy. Thanks. And uh, the, the next question from the audience is it's kind of detailed, so um, let's try it. Uh, the administration put out a much better WOTUS rule, but in County of Maui, which is a Supreme Court case, um, which I know you know, um, gave a non-inclusive seven-factor test, the Clean Water Act, that is ripe for manipulation by those who would expand federal jurisdiction. Is there a plan for an, in, for an interpretive rule or guidance document to cabin the County of Maui decision? We are still reviewing the, the Maui decision on whether and trying to make the decision whether or not we need to put out guidance or an interpretive rule. Um, we've not made that final determination yet. Um, to be honest, I, I believe I have a briefing for my staff on this later this week, but it's certainly something that we have been looking at. We've been looking at it in, in great detail. Um, and uh, we will be announcing something hopefully shortly on our approach. Um, but we have, we certainly now have this seven-factor test, as the questioner mentioned, um, from the Supreme Court, and we have to figure out how to implement that in, in a fair and balanced manner across the entire country. So I want to get to a couple of uh, COVID-related questions. Um, so a, a quick question on COVID-19 and enforcement discretion. So on March 26, the EPA released a temporary policy clarifying that the EPA was, wasn't 
going to seek penalties for non-compliance on routine matters if on a case-by-case -case basis the EPA deemed the non-compliance to be caused by COVID-19. This common sense approach though, in light of the pandemic was mischaracterized though, to say the least. Could you explain this temporary policy and how it has been mischaracterized? Absolutely, it has been completely mischaracterized. It's been mischaracterized by, quite frankly, by people who know better. Um, so all we did in our enforcement discretion was say that if a facility was unable to submit regular bookkeeping reports to the agency, and every industry has to submit uh, different types of reports to us, some on an annual basis, some on a quarterly, semi-annual, monthly, various um, various reporting requirements based upon regulations or permits. We said if you are unable to submit those reports on time, you can delay that as long as you have provided justification for COVID. You know, at that point in March, we were looking at the fact that a number of facilities across the country were shut down. We did not want to have to require people to go into a facility and fill out a, a form to submit to the EPA. In some cases, they weren't admitting anything because their facilities were shut down, but they were still required to submit their reports to us. So we said that if you can't report on time, you can submit late, provided you have an excuse tied to COVID. But we also spelled out in the enforcement um, discretion policy that it does not allow any increase in emissions. So nobody was allowed to increase their emissions. And since COVID began, began um, we have been very aggressive on the, on the um, enforcement side to make sure that people are not violating their permits or other requirements. And we have, um, uh, we've, we've taken a number of civil enforcement actions, criminal enforcement actions, um, we've entered into agreements. We've we've gone after Superfund um, um, responsible parties. All this has happened during the COVID response. Um, there has been no inc we did not allow any increase in emissions. And if anybody did increase their emissions, we did go after them. Um, EPA has often taken enforcement discretion like this in the past. Whenever there's a natural disaster, for example, hurricanes. When the Hurricane Sandy hit in New Jersey, the Obama administration not only gave enforcement discretion for, for reports, they actually gave a blanket waiver to allow people to increase their emissions in the four states impacted by Hurricane Sandy. Um, we didn't allow anybody to increase their emissions, so we took a much more measured approach, um, much much better defined. It was It was across the entire country. Um, because COVID impacted the entire country. Um, so it was, it's been mischaracterized in the press a lot. It's been mischaracterized by environmental organizations and unfortunately by some elected members of Congress who believe it's a, it's a campaign issue, which is unfortunate because it was, um, it, it was certainly in keeping with past practices. And, and actually a number of states this year issued more um, enforcement discretion than we did. Um, New Jersey, for example, um, allowed certain facilities to increase their emissions, uh, although um, the New Jersey also criticized our enforcement discretion. They took a much broader enforcement discretion for their for their industries and within their state. Thanks. And so an audience member has a uh, another COVID related question. Um, pretty long. EPA plays an important role in responding to the COVID challenge at hand through its authority to evaluate and regulate chemicals such as sanitizers that could be important to fighting 
the virus. Could you expound, expound on how the EPA has removed regulatory barriers to review innovative products in a timely fashion and comment on where the EPA needs to move more quickly to respond to COVID-19? Sure. So you're right. EPA is in, in charge of registering products that are used um, to sanitize surfaces. Um, think of um, sanitizing wipes or aerosols. I don't want to um, give particular brand names um, a, a plug, but you know, if you type, if you think about the types of products that are, people use in their homes for their for their counters on and and companies on their on, for desktops or, or conference room tables. Um, door handles, things like that. We do not regulate um, hand sanitizer, things that are used on people. That is the FDA. So the EPA is in charge of regulating the, the sanitizing products that are used on surfaces. On uh, March 7th, we had approved 40 products for use against COVID-19. As of today, we've approved over 450 products. Typically, it takes, um, I believe it's two to three months to approve one product, and we're getting the products approved within two to three weeks. Um, our staff has been working overtime to get these products approved. We put them on a searchable database on our website, um, epa.gov backslash coronavirus. We also created a, a downloadable app that people can download onto their, onto their, um, to their um, phones. So their smartphones so that when they go shopping, they can pull up the list of products and you can search by product type, name, um, use, and you can see whether or not a product has been approved for use against coronavirus. Um, I, I, I want to compliment the EPA's career scientists for all the hard work that they've done on approving so many products in, in so quick a fashion. We are also taking a look at the... Um, supply chain issues. We, we started that. I, I had conference calls with the, with the um, manufacturers of the products back in early March to find out whether or not they were having problems on their supply chain, and some of them were. We actually reached out and helped a number of them. Um, some of the, you know, the, the company, you know, facility that would make a sanitizing wipe, you know, governors would, under, governors would understand that that is a critical infrastructure facility. But what they didn't always understand was some of the Facilities that made the raw materials that go into those products um, were also um, critical infrastructure. So there's a few instances, I don't want to single out the states, but there's a few instances where we had to make phone calls to governor's offices saying, you need to make sure that these facilities are reopened as quickly as possible because they are making raw materials to go into these products. So we, the career staff here at the EPA has done a, a great job. Well, when I think we've, we've learned some lessons. I think that... Um, Going forward, we'll be able to approve these types of products on a much faster basis. I don't know that we can always get it done in two to three weeks because we had people, we pull people off of other projects and supplement the staff working on that. But certainly there's been some economies of scale that we have learned that we'll be able to implement to improve the, and speed up the process of approving these products in the future. Thanks. Uh, you know, switching gears a bit from COVID, uh, one of the most impressive feats by the EPA um, has been to carefully review the existing particulate matter and ozone standards within the five-year window for review of criteria of pollutants. Um, how did the EPA do this when past administrations inevitably get sued for taking too long? And what would you say to critics who think the EPA should take more time to review the standards? 
Well, thank you for, for that question. There's been a, a lot of mis misinformation about that in the press as well. If you, if you notice, uh, I think we have a theme here where a, a lot of the things that we're doing are being misrepresented by the, by the mainstream press. Um, I, I like to think it's an accident, but I, I'm not that naive. I think in many cases it's on purpose. Um, but in this instance, for the, for the next, for the, for the reviews of ozone and PM, um, but for all the next, there, there are nine um, national ambient air quality standard regulations. Um, we are required under the Clean Air Act to review them every five years. And for ozone and PM in particular, we've never met the deadline. We put in place over the years, over each administration is added onto the process um, for what we have to do in order to review the review each each standard. So, you know, at the beginning of this administration, my, my predecessor, Administrator Pruitt, took a look at the timeline for how long it took to review the NACs and realized that the process we had in place took longer than five years. Um, so he streamlined the process. I finalized the streamlining um, a year and a half ago to make sure that we have a process in place that will be able to review each of the NACs within the five years that the statute requires. I've actually been surprised at a number of members of Congress who have complained about the fact that we're going to get it done on time. Usually they complain to us that we're, we're slowing things down, we're not moving fast enough. Um, but, you know, if, if in, the, in this instance, I believe we can review each of these within five years. Because the important thing to remember, and the important thing for everybody, everybody out there to remember, is that once the five-year review finishes, for example, we're, we will be finished with both ozone and PM by the end of this year. The day after our five-year review ends, the next five-year review begins. One of the criticisms, there are some recent studies that came out, and I've had letters from members of Congress saying, we want you to include these studies in the five-year review. The studies actually haven't even been peer-reviewed yet. Um, so we can't wait for a study to be peer-reviewed and then use it as a basis for a regulation, particularly when it's on a five-year rolling review. So those studies, will be used, but they'll be used in the next five-year review. You have, to, you have to draw a line on what science you use um, during each five-year review, because you can't just continue to wait and wait for more science, because as soon as we wait for that science um, study to be finalized, there'll be another one coming along a few months later. So you have to draw lines, and that's what we're doing. So what we did was we changed the process to a process that can be done within five years, and we're going to get it done this year. Thanks. And so this will be our last question and uh, trying to make it quick. Um, I'll read it quickly. Uh, small businesses are often overlooked and, dis and disproportionately impacted whenever rules and regulations are developed and implemented. Uh, when engaging in the process, e EPA seems to be guided by developing regs for major sources, 100 tons plus. How will the changes you, you are, you have, and are making in the way EPA operates benefit smaller sources, such as small and smaller businesses? Mm. That's a great question. And, you know, we do have some formal processes in our regulatory process to make sure that we are taking into account impacts on small businesses. We have what's called a SBRIEF or small business review process. Um, great example is, you know, we're moving forward on um, regulations for ethylene oxide, which has been a chemical of concern in some communities. However, it is a very important um, chemical used to, um, san to sanitize hospital equipment. And there's actually shortages of it um, during COVID-19. 
So we have to make sure when we're when we are reviewing um, restrictions for a chemical like ethylene oxide, the fact that it's it's used on surgical equipment, it's used on catheters. Um, you have to use it to sterilize all this equipment. Um, our regulation for that, which I, again I, I was getting pressured from members of Congress to speed up. Um, actually, the majority of the facilities that use the that use the chemical are small businesses. So we had to pause. Um, the regulation to go to, um, and, and conduct a small business review, um, which is where we, we work with the Small Business Administration, and we um, check to see what the impact would be on both um, both costs and the regulatory impact on small businesses. So we do that on a routine basis if one of our regulations uh, impacts small businesses. But there's there's also been um, a, a change here at the agency and in, in, in our outlook. Um, you know, some prior administrations have um, tended to, to cater to large multinational corporations. Um, we take a look at what the impact is on small companies. You know, we are moving forward on, um, on our methane reduction rule. Um, there are you know, some of the large multinational oil and gas companies would prefer us um, to take one approach, but we're looking at what the impact would be on small and medium-sized American companies. And, and that's what the president wants to ensure is that our regulations don't negatively impact our industrial base here in the United States at the expense of large multinational corporations. So we are, we, there has been a change here, a change in the mindset at how we look at regulations. We want to make sure that we are protecting American jobs, but that we're also protecting the environment. Um, and as I said at the beginning, and I think I said it once, once more, um, we have reduced air pollution during this administration by 7%. Our water um, quality is at the best it's ever been. It, it's we have proven that you can improve the environment, that you can improve the environmental indicators, you can get cleaner air, you can get cleaner water, and deregulate at the same time. In our deregulatory actions, we have saved the American consumer ninety-four billion dollars here at the EPA alone. We've taken sixty-four deregulatory actions. We have 39 more planned for the rest of this year, and we're already planning more deregulatory actions for the second term. At the same time, our air is cleaner than it's ever been, our water is safer than it's ever been, and we're getting more Superfund sites and other hazardous waste sites cleaned up at a faster rate than the agency has done in 20 years. Thank you, and I wanna thank all of you again for participating in today's program and asking some great questions. I wanna thank Dr. Kim Holmes, and of course, Administrator Wheeler, I really wanna thank you for joining us today. Once again, today's webinar has been recorded and will be on heritage.org in 48 hours. Also, please be on the lookout for future heritage webinars on heritage.org. Please stay safe, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you soon in person. Thank you. Thank you, Darren.